Hi, Gauri here. We've collected the best insights from the first 20 Knowledge Base Ninjas episodes into a clear and concise ebook. Simply send a blank email to ninja at bcast.email. That's ninja at bcast.email and it will be sent right back to you. Thank you. Welcome to the Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast. Where Gauri Ram Kumar of Document 360 finds the best SaaS self-service knowledge bases in the world and then interviews their creators. Let's get started with today's episode. Uh good day everyone. Our guest today is Chris Watt, technical writer at Ethereum, a platform and a programming language that makes it possible for any developer to build and publish next generation decentralized applications so welcome chris to this uh, knowledge base ninjas podcast how are you doing today i'm very good thank you and i should just quickly point out i work for a handful of companies sometimes it's very hard to 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 show what you do when you do that but um yeah i think i will probably mention a few different people i work for fantastic yeah let, let let's start with a bit more elaborated introduction mm-hmm. of yourself then yeah please help us understand uh, your profile and uh, uh, how did your life as technical writer evolve sure i actually started out mostly as a developer in the first place i did computer science and it just seemed a logical thing to do back when I say back when I don't know if it, I'm sure it's still exactly the same. Uh, I, I used to work in agencies, mostly building content management systems for people. Uh, we used open source tools, so we would always uh, contribute back at code sprints. And um, I just found myself doing more on the documentation contribution side, uh, issue summaries, things like that, and that I was much better at it. And um, I just slowly. transitioned from being a full-time developer to being i guess a technically minded uh writer um and i've worked for a lot of small companies startups things like that so i tend to have been the first person hired to do that kind of work and um i think these days i've started using the words like technical communicator technical educator i've done a lot of different things documentation books blog posts videos courses Uh, mostly in developer tools um but sort of somewhat broad within that little category all right fantastic that that's really great to know chris so um you did ex- um, express uh, yourself as to how you initially got into documentation mm. so um since then have you been enjoying do- doing this technical writing uh, uh career and for different companies Yeah, I mean I guess like all of us I enjoy it most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it depends of course on teams and dynamics and things like that. Often again as the first person there's no real processes in place and sometimes this can be a good thing because you get to determine them. Sometimes this can be a bad thing because no one really knows how to handle you and you end up bounced around or development teams not really paying that much attention to what you say things like that so it depends i like it uh, i like kind of being in a niche i like figuring out how to explain technology um and actually that is something that i've always kind of done in my life so turning it into a career i think i do enjoy it most of the time 
as tiring and as exhausting as it can be sometimes. <laughs> Great. So in all these years, um, uh, based on your experience so far, what does your documentation process and who mm. normally gets involved in it? Um, it has mostly been one of two. Uh, bearing in mind, again, that I'm usually one of the first people doing this kind of work as my job. Um, often it has just been me. And no matter how much I try and get people to review things, no one does. <laughs> so, which, which again is, is fine, but sometimes second pairs of eyes are very useful uh, and mistakes will slip through no matter how, time, how, no, no matter how many times you look at something. Um, or it has often been me working with development teams, maybe a, a kind of developer lead, a project maintainer, who will often review things. And that is also mixed depending on the project maintainer. Sometimes your documentation kind of uh, changes can sit there waiting review for review for a very long time. And then the code gets out of date. Um, yeah, I think, to be honest with you, in the kind of places I'm working in, I'm still figuring out the best workflows for teams like that. Um, and that kind of point in time where you try to make documentation a definition of done. Um, often you're coming to a company when that isn't the case. And even though they say they want it to be the case, it isn't how it always happens. Um, it's usually more developers than writers. And so features are getting worked on and released far quicker than you can document them. Absolutely, so things yeah. fall behind and stuff like that. So uh, I kind of have the ideal processes in my head but that doesn't mean that's what I get to do. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very well said, Chris. Especially these days, development is very, very agile, right? Even in our company, a couple mm. of our products, um, it's very agile. We plan something, but then all of a sudden, a customer request comes in. We change a few priorities here and there. Yeah, it's it, at the same time, you want to keep your documentation on top of everything. So I, I can clearly understand your pain points. Mm. <laughs> uh, just out of curiosity, um, what size of teams have you worked so far? Because you did mention in yeah. you know, last conversation, you mentioned most of the time you're the only one or you're the starting yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, in terms of total team size, I have worked with everything from maybe five people up to contracting to some very large companies. I did do some work a couple of years ago for Facebook Messenger. Obviously, the Messenger team is just one team, but Facebook itself is huge. Um, and also for a company based here called, it's very confusing, a company based here called Here. Okay. Um, it's kind of a B2B mapping provider, and they are a company of 50,000 people with a documentation team. So I have done the larger uh, team size, but generally, it is usually me plus maybe everything from uh, a handful to a dozen developers. Uh, and then the startups I've worked at have been anything from 20 to 100 people. Um, with some of my more recent uh, contracts, because I've wanted to do the work, but I haven't had the capacity myself, I have sometimes brought in other people. I have one or two people that I work with fairly regularly. Mm -hmm. So in terms of my own kind of team, that joins teams. <laughs> There's maybe two or three of us who sometimes share that work amongst us. Um, but actually a team of writers is not something I have done a massive amount and I would love to. 
Uh, I just seem to have fallen into that startup open source project trap where it's not like that. But that's not to say it would be it would be great to have more people to discuss with. And I guess this is why I've ended up doing a lot of um, community projects and getting involved with sort of tech writer communities because then they replace those people you don't have on mm -hmm. your own direct team. Fantastic. So you've been sharing quite a good experience uh, and that to different companies ranging from small scale mm. to very large organizations like Facebook Messenger. So, so in such situations, what do you think are important factors when creating documentation for your SaaS or any kind of business to say? Mm. Um, I think in pretty much every use case and the, the people are going to be somewhat different from a SaaS product to a developer tool. And actually, I have worked on SaaS developer tools, so they kind of cross over a bit as well. Um, I think a lot of this is, is probably what everybody says, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting the various inputs to the outputs. Um, in my case, there's obviously going to be a developer audience in there yeah. who have very particular uh, demands and expectations. Um, then there will be some business expectations. This is the business that you are working for, um, which may have sales, features, marketing, uh, priorities that documentation sometimes touches on, not always, but to a certain extent, especially if you're doing more of the kind of blogging work or something like that. You're sort of part of that, that onboarding funnel, whether you like it or not. Um, then there may be other people involved. You may have project owners, uh, be they technical or, or non-technical project owners or somewhere between the two. Maybe you have designers as well who are helping you build not just kind of plain text, but something more, more involved. Um, so firstly, it's getting a lot of those inputs and trying to balance them. Um, then secondly, I'm a big fan these days of consistency, style guides, things like that. Uh, again, sort of vis-a-vis -vis the earlier conversation, trying to get people to stick to those is a mixed, a mixed, a, a mixed mixture. Mm -hmm. You can tell I, I know I'm good with words. A mixed mixture of experiences. Um, it's easier with some teams than others. Some are more used to working with them. Some don't see the point, et cetera. Um, but especially in a SaaS company, I think consistency around certain things is very important. Terminology uh, the way you communicate with people, um, terminology especially, so you don't confuse people. Um, and then I guess when we get down to the actual documentation itself, it's things like uh, checking it works, checking it's up to date. Uh, if you're starting from scratch, of course, this could be easier, but then you have to keep going from there. Um, we all know how frustrating it is when we've been to something and it doesn't work. Uh, and especially in a SaaS company, that is a potential um, revenue stream lost. Uh, and I think the same thing applies to bad writing. Um, and when I say bad writing, I mean, good and bad writing is, is a little bit in the, eye, in the eye of the beholder, but there are certain things that we know uh, are negative experience. So spelling mistakes, um, very unclear grammar. I mean, we can argue endlessly about what is good and bad grammar, but there are certain things that just don't work mm. and things like that. So I, I like to think that um, aside from the technical 
um, working of documentation. There should also be the English language or whatever language you're writing in working as well. And if those are poor as an experience, then you have the chance to put people off. Um, that's my belief. I mean, there some skeptics sometimes say that SaaS companies sometimes almost engineer these things a little bit on purpose. So you have to ring support and sales, but <laughs> that's, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but that would be my own kind of things I would like to do. Absolutely. I mean, very well said, Chris, because um, keep the message simple and clean so customers understand and, of course, reduce your support mm. calls. That should be your um, your motto, I guess, right? Mm. So, um, so when it comes to your customer service or success strategy, I think you partly answered this question in my uh, mm. previous conversation. What role do you think documentation plays, uh, especially on your success strategy? So having at the moment working with a lot of open source projects where success strategies are somewhat vague and also hard to measure um, because we're not always going through external pla uh, platforms or portals where people access things that are easier to track. Mm -hmm. So in the open source world, there's a lot of resistance to tracking or we're working with people who block it anyway. So it's very unreliable. Um, so it's somewhat difficult for us to get success metrics. The one main thing that I think applies in the open source world and in the SaaS world, although how it's handled is, is obviously very different, is the kind of measure of um, how many questions are we getting? Are we seeing a change, a significant change after making documentation changes to questions we used to get? Mm. So was it that six months ago, everyone kept getting stuck on a particular thing. We tweaked the documentation there and now we're seeing less on that question. But of course, we also know that this is very hard to be reliable because maybe just no one has that question anymore. Um, <laughs> yes. so, so actually documentation has always been really difficult to measure. And the one main one that we all kind of refer to, especially in SaaS businesses, is still somewhat unclear. And we also know that in SaaS businesses especially and also in the open source world, there's people who don't read anything and just want to open a support request or phone someone or open a GitHub issue. So no matter how good your documentation was, they're still going to ask questions anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> I would say documentation is very important in that uh, measurement, but what that measurement is and whether we've been successful has always been really difficult to get right, especially in the worlds that I work in where we have very little control over how people access um, a product anyway um, and how they interact with people. We don't really have official channels for support and things like that. Or we do, but they're all very nebulous and, and spread out and disconnected. And, mm. you know, so it's, it's quite difficult. But, I mean, my own personal metrics have been, uh, I'm a big fan of going to hackathons, for example, that use your tool and watching people. And that is very, very um, unscalable <laughs> and uh, many, uh, has many, many flaws. But on a personal level, it's a way I can actually go and directly speak to people and say, hey, what problems are you having? And watch what people are doing and watch what people are looking at and how they create things. But yeah, that is a very unscalable way of doing it. But it's a personal one that I'm a fan of, that's for sure. 
fantastic yeah i mean every 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 question i ask you the level of details you're giving shows shows me how passionate you are about this field so and what you're saying is i is i talk a lot <laughs> no i can really see the passion coming out you know sometimes the frustration as well <laughs> yeah and you do catch me at a time where i'm a little bit tired for the past few years and i'm about to take a little bit of time off actually so so maybe the frustration is is higher than what might have been a few months ago <laughs> <laughs> but the good thing is when you get a support ticket you have a documentation to share to your customer <laughs> yeah yeah um, um and actually i think somewhat relating more maybe to the 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 meat of of this podcast is around the aspect of even your teammates knowing that documentation you know the number of times your teammates would just say hey chris where will i find the documentation for this and then you send them a link and it's like you really could have found that yourself <laughs> um so yeah and and i think this is this is one aspect in many of the companies i've been in where the internal documentation or the looking for it is pretty lacking um and maybe it's a size company maybe it's the nature of working in developer teams where everything is very disparate and spread out but that is actually one area where um a lot of the teams i've been in could really benefit from it but no one ever really steps up to fix it true i think thinking about the problem is the first solution right then then uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> i don't know i think i think i agree with you but if you just constantly acknowledge the problem but never ever do anything about it then i don't know if that's I don't know if that's better or worse. I don't know. It's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think I'm going to skip that question as to how, what kind of reduction in workload have you seen? Um, because you did tell me that it's been it's been very hard measuring, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. And and again, it's also hard to know. Maybe your product just has less interest than it did six months ago. So yeah, it's. I don't know. It it's it's super hard for us to measure things in open source. In fact, I just came from um a week and a half ago. There's a big open source conference in Brussels called Fostem and mm-hmm. they have a community metrics track and pre-conference. And every year, I think people from large and small companies have this same discussion as so, so <laughs> how do you measure in open source? It's very difficult. <laughs> So let me let me ask you how do you measure the quality of your documentation then so you 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 have a customer support coming and you send the documentation is that how you measure the quality means you don't get a question back again on the same documentation okay i'll firstly i'll go uh, back a step so one thing i'm a big fan of which i've already alluded to is a little bit of a process of pre quality control mm-hmm. um and this reflects my more technical background and or working with very technical teams is that I'm a big fan of what is somewhat starting to be called things like doc ops or documentation engineering like setting up your own kind of developer horizontal tool chains around documentation so I set up things like um spell checkers are somewhat obvious but grammar and style checkers code testing structure testing things like that as well which will give me a bit of a pre metric and these of course are not these are just guidelines they're not um be all and end all definition of hey chris this got 9 out of 
or whatever the measure is, this is good documentation. It has no, it's just pattern matching. It has no concept of what is good or bad, but it gives you some initial kind of steps of things to improve maybe. Um, so that's one thing I do. And that is actually quite helpful with working with developers as well, because that's something that they can look at quite easily. And it's a process they're used to with code as well. So that's one pre-step. The step after that, I think, uh, and this is actually one of the big advantages we have in open source over SAS, is that anybody can come along and comment, criticize, collaborate what you've written. Um, and this can be this can be mentally draining sometimes because people are not always very good at um, communicating in pleasant or helpful ways. Mm-hmm. But also you do get feedback quite regularly. Whereas in, in SaaS companies, maybe you do, maybe you don't. There's also going to be a very large group of silent people who say nothing um, because they don't know they can. They're on plans that don't have support, et cetera, et cetera. So we do have that as an advantage as well. That said, we also know that, you know, one person's good is another person's terrible. And because documentation didn't answer their specific question and their specific problem, they think it's rubbish. Um, And other people think it's great because it solved their exact problem. So (laughs) sometimes that quality control can be difficult. Um, But there are times when, of course, you get very, uh, very obvious, clear feedback. This code does not work. And maybe you checked it and you tested it three months ago, but something as, as it is like to has changed in a dependency or a tool or a programming language, and yes, it doesn't work anymore. Uh, that is somewhat relatively easy to fix. And then you kind of get more opinionated things where you probably have to start having a discussion with people about, okay, right, this, this doesn't work for you. Can you give me more information? Um, what's the feedback? Why didn't it work for you? Do you have any suggestions around improvement? So in the open source world, we can have much more of this discussion. Whereas I think um, possibly in the SaaS world, it's more like support says, this person says, this isn't any good, write a fix it. And maybe you're stuck there thinking, um, okay, where do I start? So, so, <laughs> so, so we kind of have that that advantage a little bit um but it is hard to to filter it out sometimes um and sometimes discussions can run and run and run and then never reach any conclusion um or as we said already things move very fast so by the time it's actually ready to to go live something else has got out of date and broken so, <laughs> so yeah. you have to kind of start all over again um so yeah we do have that quick feedback uh loop um I also come back again to highly recommending internal hackathons for everybody to get used to using a tool and following the documentation. Um, developers do have a tendency on the on the developers and designers on projects you work on do have a tendency to not use the project very much um, and not give you information that is essential. Um, but if, if if you're kind of working together on using the tool, then sometimes it surfaces information that no one had ever communicated with each other as well. So um, I think I went slightly off topic there. But, um, yeah, it kind of goes back to square one where we started with this, I think. You process feedback and 
you process feedback as much as you can to get a balanced view. But generally, someone makes a decision at some point of this feedback is constructive, this feedback I think is too niche, uh, this feedback we will try and see what other people think, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I don't think any of it's particularly original or rocket science, but it's just processing the inputs and then seeing what you could filter out. And a lot of it is based on your own gut feeling as well. You know, um, that comes with experience. It's not always very easy to put your finger on what it is, but sometimes you think, uh, I, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but I would like you to trust me on this approach. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Great. So uh, you did mention that with open source, most of the things are internal and, um, uh, you know, it's very hard to measure um, the uh, uh, success strategy or how how good it is. Um, do you, uh, from any of your past experiences, have you generated any organic search traffic from your knowledge base? Yeah, we actually, depending on the project, we track and uh, keep an eye on many different things, also including what people are searching for, some pathways that people follow, some basic analytics. Um, But firstly, I will say, especially in some of the spaces I work in at the moment, which is the the Ethereum one, especially because a lot of people in that are very privacy-focused, uh, either we don't turn any tracking on in the first place because people will complain about it or they block it. So um, it's actually somewhat difficult for us to even get those metrics in the first place. Um, but on the projects where we do, we do definitely look at that. We look at, um, so for example, with uh, one of my clients at the moment, Event Store, which is a open source slash SaaS uh, offering on top of that, and uh, Cowrie, which is actually more of a content platform. In fact, it's almost kind of like a knowledge base in many ways, but with more with uh, long-form content. We do a lot of tracking there on topics that people are looking for, topics that bring people to the platform in the first place, so kind of more on the growth or marketing side, but also um, what people are looking for in documentation and in support platforms when it comes to uh, event stores case and Mm -hmm. getting feedback from the support teams as to things that are missing as well. Um, Sometimes that may not be a documentation issue. For example, if a client who is a sort of a SaaS client has a very particular problem that is only really relevant to them, then it's not really a documentation issue. It's more of a support engineer issue. Uh, And then maybe... They get a few tidbits from that experience of settings or things like that that should be mentioned more clearly in the documentation. But so that's, I think, one of the areas where it's also useful to to get the feedback from the support teams is knowing when it isn't documentation as well. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, a lot of the time it's we have this setup trying to do this particular use case and no one else is going to be doing that. So you don't really need to document it in public documentation, but maybe something internal is useful for, for future use. Um, and we do do that. Uh, and we've been looking at ways to kind of synchronize the public and internal documentation a bit better. 
Um, I know some of the knowledge-based platforms have things like uh, basic chatbots and stuff like that, where you can try to kind of source different content and um, automate some of the very basic questions and then save some of the more advanced questions for the humans. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're, they're not all great right now, but um, some of those sorts of things we've experimented with. Um, yeah. True. A combination of all these modern technology yeah. and uh, good documentation will definitely help. Yeah. yeah. Super. So let's finish off with the rapid fire round. Mm-hmm. Um, who have you learned the most about documentation from in your career? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it uh, might be a hard one for you. <laughs> no, it's good to think. I... I think I will actually say, even though it wasn't always a, uh, it was sometimes a difficult relationship. Um, when I was working with a very technical project as part of the Ethereum Foundation, a compiler, the project maintainer and I often disagreed a lot on explaining things. Um, I wanted to oversimplify. They wanted to often overcomplicate in my mind. And we argued a lot over that. But actually, Realizing, especially with that project, that sometimes being very, very precise and maybe that meant it being unfriendly at times was very important in this project. And that was something that I learned from many disagreements with them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was a, it's an interesting one to, to, to mention, but I think I ended up learning a lot about particular, very particular use cases with documentation there. Great. So can you share a documentation-related resource you have consumed recently? Um, I think the one that sticks in my mind the most is an odd one, and it has is one I mentioned a couple of other times before because it's not explicitly documentation, but it's one of the ones I found most useful for the style of writing I do as a technical writer anyway. And this is actually a book by Stephen King called mm-hmm. On Writing, not aimed at technical writers at all, in fact, he, bear in mind this book was written in the 90s when tech writers had a slightly different reputation. He's quite critical of, of tech writers in it at certain <laughs> points, actually. But he has some very, very easy-to-understand tips on engaging writing. And whatever you think about his work, I found really useful and especially useful for illustrating why particular grammatical things were important. Uh, so it's an odd one, but that's actually one I keep going back to. Very nice, very nice. So you find um, um, electronic copy of his book, is it? Yeah, it's available as an ebook. It's available on uh, Kindle and Scribed. It's also available in print. Uh, it's been around for a little while, um, and it, it's fairly well known. So it's relatively easy to find. And whether you like his work or not, the book is useful. <laughs> <laughs> so. What is the one piece of documentation related advice you would give to your 20 year old self? 20 year old self? <laughs> um, read it. I think that's okay. about it. Because 20 year old self, I wasn't really writing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, read anything, is it? <laughs> Yeah, I can't even remember what I was doing at 20, to be perfectly honest with you. So, <laughs> actually, I, I, would, I think I, I went to university slightly late. I think I was in my first or second year of university. And actually, consuming documentation then was very different. So 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think just read it. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a very good uh, advice or suggestion because nowadays kids they hardly read any books, right? I, mean, oh, I don't all... think we read it then either. <laughs> uh, we, we had to buy a whole load of expensive textbooks that none of us really read because even though searching online for solutions was in its early days, then this is like two thousand and one, two, uh-huh. Uh-huh. it was still there. So you know. It was in a transition phase. So we didn't really use those books we bought. <laughs> yeah. Even now, uh, kids, they don't literally use any dictionaries to search uh, words. They use the app and the mobile phone or iPads to look for words yeah, and meanings. Yeah, yeah, and this is actually an interesting, some, something interesting that we didn't really discuss here about looking at where people access information now and remembering that it's not just where you want them to be accessing it. Mm. You have to figure out how to get your content into those places as well. Yeah, <laughs> great. Use the right medium to reach the right audience. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And uh, thank you once again. And what are we going to do the rest of the week? Enjoy and yeah, have a good too. time. No worries. Thank have a good you. week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast. Please head to iTunes, rate, and provide honest feedback on the podcast. See you next week.